Well, good morning. Uh, it's awesome just to be able to worship you. Worship you. That's not right at all. Worship <laughs> with you this morning. Totally ruined the reverence of the moment and that nice, uh, quiet music. Uh, let me try again. It's awesome to get to worship with you, uh, Jesus, this morning. Uh, my name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors on our preaching team, and it really is just a blessing. I, I love being at both of our campuses, and I love love being able just to stand in the back, to sing with you as we're singing the truth of God's Word, to hear you singing at the top of your lungs, and us just encouraging one another as we're singing the Word together. So it's just, it's such a blessing. Uh, we are in Colossians, as we have been, so if you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, if you don't know what that is, to start in the Gospels and kind of move toward the right, you'll hit it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, next to you, under you, something like that, and you can take that. That's a gift. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. It's the most precious thing in the world. So Colossians uh, chapter 1. And this morning, as always, we're just looking at an awesome passage of Scripture. So we've been walking through this book together, and you can find resources online at tcbeerchurch.org. And you can find, you know, there's a reading plan, there's memorization plans. We are just diving deep into this book together. And I just want to encourage you to do that with your life group. If you're not a life group, I encourage you to be in a life group, but just to dive deep into what this passage is and this book and this letter that's to us. So I just want to pray again, if that's okay. And as I pray, I just want to encourage you to pray for the person to your right or to your left as the family. Just encourage one another. You might know who they are, they may not. Uh, but let's just pray that God would be glorified, that we would see him this morning. Father, we, just, we love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We pray that there would be nothing known in this place more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, we pray that you would be put on display. We pray that you would change us. Uh, that you teach us, that you grow us, who are part of your family, and for anyone in this room who does not know you, I pray that even this morning you would open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel and they would place their faith and trust in you. So we need you, I need you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Colossians 1. So uh, you've, you've heard the word read. We're just going to walk through this passage, and kind of up to this point, just to catch you up if you've been here or not been here, this is a letter by Paul to the church at Colossae. Uh, He's writing from a Roman prison, uh, and we're going to get into that a little bit more in just a minute. And as he's writing this letter, we've kind of walked through different parts. At the beginning, he, he talks about what he's thankful for them for, what he's heard about them. And Paul's actually never been to this church. He didn't planet personally. It was planted by, uh, we believe, Epaphras, who's an associate of Paul, and he talks about him here at the beginning of this, this portion of Scripture. So he's writing to this church, encouraging them in the things that are going well. Later on, you're going to see he's also going to help kind of correct some false teaching that's beginning to sneak its way into the church. So he begins by thanksgiving. He moves into a prayer that he prays for them, asking that the church should be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's prayer is that they would be so full of God's word that it would control them. They would control what they do. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that your life as a church, and he's speaking to us as the church, that our lives would declare the worth of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. It's why God has saved us, so that all that we are might declare the worth of Jesus, that every choice we make, every word that we speak would magnify his name. And then he moves from that to talking about how worthy Jesus is. That's where we've been the last couple weeks, talking about how 
awesome Jesus is, that everything was created in Him and by Him and for Him, and everything holds together through Him. And then last week, Easter and Good Friday, we've been talking about how He's come and He reconciles us. He brings us back into right relationship through His blood, through His death, through the good news of the gospel. And so that's what we've been going through, and that gets us to Colossians 1.24. And so Paul, now that he's kind of set up his thank you, and he's called to them what he wants to see happen to them, and he's talked about the beauty of the gospel, now begins to talk about his ministry to them. And so I just want to read these few verses again, and we're going to dive right in. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister. Okay, so he's talking about his ministry to them. That's going to be the main focus, but we're going to look at this morning. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, and this is kind of where we're going to be focusing on as well, the ministry of mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, here it is again, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So this morning, what we're going to be looking at is Paul's ministry of the mystery, okay? And you've probably already seen what the mystery is, and we're going to walk through that, but we're going to look at his ministry to the church, and it's a ministry of this mystery that he's talking about. And when we talk about mystery, it's really important to, to know what we say when we mean the word mystery, uh, we're not talking about like deeper things of the faith, that once you get to a certain part and certain place in your spiritual walk, that suddenly you can start figuring out things. So like, it's not like Pastor Derek is so much further in his love relationship with the Lord that he can tell all the deep mysteries of the Word. That's not what it's talking about here. A mystery is something that has been hidden from understanding that is now made clear. That's what it's talking about. So how many of you have ever seen or watched a movie that, you know, was you're going through the movie, there was a plot twist, and all of a sudden everything changed. Like what was unclear became clear. Anybody in here? Okay, thank you. A couple people helped me out. That's awesome. Or you've been reading a story, and you're kind of tracking along, and then all of a sudden everything changes. So if you're like a Harry Potter fan, and you're in the last book, and, you know, Severus, and what happens to him, and Harry's looking at the pool, and all that kind of stuff, it changes everything. So I'm like... He's talking about witchcraft on stage. What's going on? So if you're against Harry Potter, it's okay. We can talk about it later. But there's a shift. Everything changes with the revelation of what's happening. Or how many of you here like love Disney World? Anybody in the room grow up going to Disney World? You love the magic. Anybody here like anti-Disney World? Okay, a few cynics in the room. Okay, I tend to fall in the cynical camp, um, but my wife loves Disney World. My kids, they love, we got to go for the first time last year. And when you're a child and you go to Disney World, everything's magical, right? Everything's magical. How do they know your name before you even walk in the building? And it's like these men are trying to pull a sword out of stone and they can't do it, but a little kid can walk out and do it. It's like everything's magic. And then when you get older, you're just like cynical, like everything costs money and you're talking about how it works and I bet I can figure out that trick the mystery begins to be known right 
Uh, a few weeks ago, I was in Nashville visiting uh, my brother and my sister-in-law, and, and uh, on our way back, before we left, we went kind of to this place called The Factory, and they have all these shops in it, and I knew nothing about it. We just went down there. My brother Daniel and I were looking for coffee, and we had a, happened upon this place called Five Daughters Bakery. Has anybody ever heard of this? Well, anyone here just enjoy really good, like, homemade food, like sweets, treats. I know Larry feels me. You're always looking for that place, right? That place in each city. He's my brother, so I, we've talked about this. Always trying to find that diamond in the rough of city that has that great food. Well, they make the world's, like, literally best donuts. I had no idea it existed. I walk around the corner. There is a line that's, like, 20 minutes long. I'm like, I'm getting in this line. Like, if there's 20 minutes long line of people, I'm standing here because something on the other side of that line is awesome. And it was awesome, you know. And so my parents literally went to Nashville a couple weeks after that, a week ago, to go visit them. And I made sure they brought me back donuts from Five Daughters Bakery because it was so awesome. Well, what changed? Was Five Daughters, was it always there? Has it been there for years? Yeah, it has. What changed was I found out about it. I didn't know about it before, but I happened upon it, and now it changes everything. And so what we're looking at this morning in this text is this ministry of mystery. It's something that wasn't revealed before, but now it's become known. And because it's become known, it changes everything. So let's look at what this is. And before we can really break down what the mystery is, we have to start with the ministry. Because Paul begins here in this passage. He wants us to see the ministry that he's giving to the church, the cost, the effort that's behind it. Why? Because if we appreciate and understand the ministry, then we see the bigness of the mystery. Like, for what he goes through to serve this church, this mystery must be major. It must be of magnitude when it comes to importance. So, In this passage, we see his ministry, and his ministry is really broken down to three things. We're just going to run through these, and we'll talk about the mystery and what it means for us. So the mystery, and I know I'm going to say this wrong several times, we're going to look at the ministry of the ministry, the ministry of the mystery of Paul. There we go. Try to say that five times fast. And so here's the big idea. Here's what I want you to think about. It'll make sense as we walk through it. When we begin to grasp the mystery of God, and it begins to get a hold of us, it changes the way we see Jesus and the way we serve one another. So if we can understand the ministry, and we understand the mystery of this ministry of Paul, it begins to change the way that we see God, our love for Jesus, and it begins to change the way that we serve one another. And you're going to see this. So let's just walk through this passage together. Colossians 1.24, so here's the first part. Paul's ministry of the mystery was one of joy. Joy. The first thing we see about Paul's ministry of the mystery to the church, again, I'm not going to be able to say it, here we go, is joy. He begins verse 24 by saying, Now I rejoice. Now I rejoice. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I, I just want us to camp out because whether you've been a Christian your whole life, whether you're new to the faith, maybe you're here and you don't believe any of this stuff, you're just trying to find out or someone's invited you, you need to know that faith in Jesus Christ is where joy in this life is found. Your joy and my joy can only be found in Jesus. 
And Paul begins this whole thing by saying, now I rejoice. The word rejoice means I return to the source of my joy. What does he rejoice in? Well, he just got finished talking about Jesus Christ and his blood that reconciles us to God. I rejoice in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in him. Your joy, my joy, it's tied to and it's found in him. The Christian life's not always easy or worry-free or pain-free, but it can be, and it's been called to be, a joy-filled life. And so there are passages that we know well, like Psalm 34 talks about taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 16, uh, 11 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Psalm 145, 16, it talks about you open up your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And then Jesus later on in John 15, 11, he says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So one of the things that Paul wants the church at Colossae and our church to see is that his ministry to them is a ministry of joy. Joy. You and I are called to have joy. That doesn't mean happiness. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness is an emotion that goes back and forth, and it can be all over the place. It can be there and not. Joy is deep-rooted. You can have joy in the most miserable of circumstances because joy is about what you're hoping in. And the reason we often lose our joy in life and in the Christian life is because we take our hope off of Jesus Christ. He never changes. He stays the same. We change, we shift. John MacArthur, he says it this way, joy is generated by humility. People lose their joy when they are self-centered, not God-centered. But when people are God-centered, that's where joy is found. And Paul begins by saying, this mystery that I want you to know about, this mystery that's been given to me to declare to you, it's one full of joy. And so my ministry to you, church, is a ministry of joy. But it's not just a ministry of joy. Here's the second part of this ministry. And this is not what we would expect. It's a ministry of suffering. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in what? In my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. I don't know about you, uh, but that's not typically what I would say, right? I, I return to my source of joy in my sufferings. But Paul's saying, in my sufferings, in my hardship, that is where joy is found. Well, well, why? Let's keep going. For your sake. What does that mean? It means that my sufferings, Paul's saying his sufferings. What are his sufferings? Well, he's in prison right now, okay? I don't know how bad your life is, but you're not in prison, because if you're in prison, you wouldn't be here this morning, right? So none of us are in prison. He's in prison. And you can read on in First and Second Corinthians, and you see the things Paul went through, shipwrecks and beatings with rods and beatings with whips and stoning and snake bites and just persecution outside and inside and all this kind of stuff. And he's saying, I rejoice in my sufferings. It's incredible. For your sake. What does that mean? It means that I am, in Paul's understanding of his pain and of his loss, this is what he's saying, my suffering is for you. And for us, most of the time, this is the question that that comes to my mind a lot. When I walk through pain, when I walk through hardship, when I walk through difficulty, I walk through it a lot of times saying, God, why are you doing this to me? 
God, why are you allowing me to go through this? What's your purpose in this for me? And I'm not saying that there's no purpose in suffering for us, but this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, my suffering is not for me, it's for you. Maybe your pain, maybe some of the difficulty you've walked through, maybe some of the hardship, the wrongs that have been committed to you, maybe standing for your faith in front of people who don't accept it, maybe that's as much for other people who are watching your life as it is for you. That's what Paul's saying. And so Paul's saying, I count it joy to suffer because my suffering is for your goodness, your joy, your growth, your and my pain is meant to be for the good of other people. And we're going to just keep walking through this passage. The reason that I'm finding joy in my sufferings, Paul's saying, is because my sufferings are for your sake. This purpose is for you. I gladly endure them for you. Let's just keep walking through this passage. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So Paul's saying, I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? Because my sufferings are filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction on your behalf. So what's Paul mean? He's saying there's purpose in my pain. And the purpose of my pain is to show what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So that should cause us to ask the question, what in the world is lacking in Christ's afflictions, right? It's Paul saying that there's something missing in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It's Paul saying that there must be something else that we do on top of what Jesus has already done in order for us to be saved. What do you think? Makes us feel a little uneasy. It should, right? No, that's not what he's saying, okay? He's not, he's not preaching a work salvation. When he says, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's not saying that Jesus' death on the cross was somehow insufficient and I'm filling out the rest. That's not what he's saying. It can't be what he's saying. Why? Well, because when we go back to Colossians 1, 15 through 22, Paul's very clear in the preceding verses that you and I were dead in our sins. We're enemy. We're hostile to God. The only way that we can be saved is through Jesus Christ. It's his work alone, not our work, right? In fact, this verse is one of the verses that Catholic, Roman Catholics use to talk about, um, talk about uh, some of the different forms of purgatory. Sorry, losing my words. This idea that after death we have to go and work or suffer for a certain amount of time so that we can get to heaven. This is one of those passages that, that they come from. But that's not what Paul's saying. So if Paul's not saying that there's anything we add to our salvation, what is, what is Paul saying? And I, I think there's a verse that really helps us here. Pastor John Piper has helped me understand this passage a lot. Philippians 2.30 helps us understand this passage because Paul uses almost the exact same phrase. In the book of Philippians, Paul's talking about an offering that the church of Philippi is sending to him to help him in his ministry. And I think we have this, we'll put it on the screen. Philippians 2.30, it says this. He's talking about Epaphras. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So it's almost the exact same terminology. And Paul's saying, this gift that you are sending to me, there was something lacking in the gift. Now what's lacking? Well, not the gift, but the giver. 
What's lacking is that the church of Philippi isn't physically there to give the gift to the Apostle Paul. And so Epaphras is filling up what is lacking by being physically present in the giving of the gift. Say, okay, Paul, what does that have to do with this whole thing? Okay, so jump back to Colossians 1.24. When he says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking, what is lacking? What is the one thing that you and I can't see about Jesus' death and resurrection? We don't actually get to see his death in our place, right? Jesus died 2,000 years ago. You and I can't see him. He's ascended. He's with God on high. So what Paul's saying is, the physical display of Jesus' suffering in your place and my place cannot be seen. But it can be seen through my suffering. So Paul's saying, when you see my suffering, you're getting a picture, small picture, of the way that Jesus suffered for you. What does that mean for us? When you and I suffer well for the cause of Christ, people get to see Jesus' death on display through your suffering in your life. That is why it's joy. Paul's saying, I rejoice because when you see my suffering, you get a picture, a small glimmer of the way Jesus suffered for you. Not the same, but just a little physical reality of what that looks like. So church, when we walk through hardship, when we walk through pain, when we walk through rejection, when we walk through loss, and we walk through saying Jesus is better, Jesus more than enough, that he is my king, he's all-sufficient, when we do that, we're saying to a watching world, through our suffering, Jesus is real. Jesus is better. What, what would bring joy in pain? Why would we rejoice at loss? Because our hope is not in our loss, our hope is in Christ. And so when we walk through hardship in a way that magnifies the Lord, we become a picture to a watching world. And so Paul's saying, my ministry to you is to fill up, so you think about a cup that's not all the way full, it's to fill up the afflictions of Christ. Now that's, again, Jesus has done everything we need to be saved, but what he's saying is, my physical body is a picture in my sufferings of Jesus to you, and for us to others. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. So here's what I want to do. I'm just going to give some truths about suffering. You don't have to write these down. These are in the notes online. You can get them. I just want you to think about them. So when we're walking through pain, when we're walking through suffering, we're walking through hardship, here are some things that are true for you and for me from this passage. One is this, suffering has a purpose in the life of a Jesus follower. Suffering has purpose. It's not by accident. It's not random. There's purpose in it. It's for your good. It's for God's glory. I know that's easy for me to say, but it's true. That's what this passage is teaching us. Suffering, second, in our lives is as much for others as it is for us. Your hardship, your suffering is as much for other people, if not even more for them at times than for you as they see the way that you suffer for Jesus Christ. Third, suffering is where joy is found. You can find joy in suffering because if your hope is in Christ, when you lose all things and you suffer the loss of all things, you don't suffer the loss of where your joy is. It causes you to lean into where your joy is in Jesus Christ. Another, suffering is a means for others to see the gospel's work in me. If you're becoming more and more like Christ, when you walk through suffering, it shows the character that's being built out in you. 
Suffering is meant to be a physical picture of Jesus' suffering in our place for a watching world to see. We've, we've talked about that one. Suffering is a byproduct of me carrying the gospel to others. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will struggle. In this world it will be difficult for you. Suffering is coming. So as we carry the gospel to others, that's going to be a part of our lives. But suffering helps assure us also that we belong to Jesus. We walk through suffering and we see Christ in it. It shows our faith. So Paul's ministry of the mystery is one of joy. It's one of joy in suffering. And the third and final part is it's a ministry of the word. Ministry of joy, a ministry of suffering, a ministry of the word. Let's, if you have your Bible, walk through this and we're going to tie all this together. Of which, verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. If you circle, underline, this is really important, for you again. So my sufferings are for you. Paul's in Rome, he's not in Colossae, but he's saying, my sufferings here are for your benefit. My ministry in Rome is for you. It's for me. Why? To make the word, there's, there it is, of God fully known. A ministry of the word. I just want to back up. Verse 25 says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. That word stewardship uh, it literally means, it's two Greek words in one, it means house manager, okay? So Paul's saying, this is the stewardship, so a house manager is someone who's been given a job by someone who owns a home to take care of their property and their assets for them. So while Jesus is in heaven, he's given Paul a stewardship, a responsibility to take what has been given to his hands to use it for the kingdom, okay? That's what he's saying. And just as a way of application for you and for me, I would just challenge you to think about what's the stewardship that God's given to you? If you're a Jesus follower in this room, every single person has been given a stewardship by God for their life. Your family, your finances, your neighbors, your job, your children, your classmates, your degree program. These aren't things that you've earned. These are things that God has given you for whatever period of time you have them, to be a steward of them for his glory. So my question to you and the question to me is, how are you doing at stewarding the things that God has given into your hands? It's what we've been called to do as believers. So he says, uh, stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Here's the other part that's really important. Everything that God has given to you into your hands to steward is not for you. It's not for me. God's not given me my family and my marriage and my job for my benefit. God's given me those things for his glory and for your good. For your good. And the tendency within our hearts is to hold on selfishly to everything God's given us and try to gain more. When instead, God's called us to live with open hands and be steward of all that God's given to us. So, Again, application. Here's what I'd ask. What are you doing to steward the relationships of your church family? Are you involved in each other's lives? Are you in community with one another? 
not just this campus, but it's the great campus. We're all one church, and believers outside of that church who are part of the church, you've been given your home, your gifts, your career, your friends, your family, all these things you've been given by God to be a steward of them for God's glory and the good of others. And I think one reason why so many of us live lives that have no joy and no life and no purpose is because we're holding on to everything we have. Instead of saying, how can I be a benefit? And this context is not to the outside world unbelievers. Okay, we could talk about that another time. But to the church. How are you opening up your life for the good of your brothers and sisters in this room? How am I opening up my life, laying down my life, stewarding the things God has given me for the benefit of the body? And so Paul specifically has been given this ministry of the mystery of the word, and this is what he says, it was given to me for you by God to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. So Paul has been called by God to make this word fully known. We're going to talk about what that is. It's his calling. Keep going. So what is the word fully known? Well, that's the mystery, okay? And this is where we tie it all together. What is the ministry of the mystery? Well, the ministry is a ministry of joy. It's a ministry of suffering. It's a ministry of the word. What is the mystery? Why is he doing this? Why is he suffering? Why is he sharing the word? What is the mystery that Paul's been given to tell to the church at Colossae, been given to tell us that changes us and changes everything? Let's keep going. The mystery hidden for ages, generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, or this mystery. And again, think about my illustration at the beginning. A mystery is something that was not revealed that has now been revealed, right? So that's what Paul's saying, that there's a mystery, there's something that we didn't understand about God's word, there's something that we didn't understand about the gospel, but it's now been revealed to you, the saints, okay? What is it? It's right here. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this is the mystery. This is the good news. This is your hope and my hope, the hope of glory. This is why Paul would rejoice in sufferings. This is why he would write from a Roman prison to this church, because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, who's the you? Well, the you is twofold. One, it's Gentiles. And so this, this is the beauty of this mystery. Paul is saying what was once hidden has now been known. What was once hidden? How the gospel would come to those outside of the nation of Israel. Because all throughout the Old Testament, the good news and the promises of God, it was given to the Jews. It was given to God's people. And there are these glimpses all throughout the Old Testament that somehow this good news is going to go to all the world. We just don't know how. Right now, it's limited to the nation. It's limited to a sacrificial system. It's limited to all these things. But there's this hope that one day it's going to be known to those outside of the house of Israel, which most of us belong to. Okay, so this is really good news to us. We get to that. But this mystery, how can this be known to other people? So here's some of the passages that, that point us here. I just want us to look at it real quickly. Genesis 17, 4 says this. God talking to Abraham. Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. What does that mean? 
early, early, early on, before there were the Ten Commandments, God makes a promise to Abraham, you're going to be the father not of just a nation, but many nations. So somehow through you, the nations, the world, is going to receive blessing. Fast forward to Daniel and the prophets. 7.13, I saw in night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. So again, this promise, one day all peoples, all nations, all languages, again, Paul's not talking to a church that speaks English, right? Uh, not the church speaks Hebrew, right? So we are all languages that he's talking to. Somehow the gospel is going to get to them. Isaiah 9.1 says this, But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. It's a promise about Jesus, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee is like Irwin, okay? There's not, or Johnson City or wherever, there's not a lot there. For those of you who are Irwin, I'm sorry. It's just, it's not a place you would expect a world ruler to come out of. Um, and so, uh, and so this is what he's saying, that somehow out of a place like Galilee is going to come someone who's going to reach the nations. And then Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 12, says this, A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So now Jesus says, there's a man coming, I'm that man, through me the Gentiles will have hope. So this is the mystery. How is the good news going to get to the rest of the world? The mystery is through Jesus Christ. It's Christ in you. It's not a sacrificial system. It's not being a part of a certain heritage or lineage. It's not going to a certain church. It's not doing enough good things. It's not any of that stuff. It's through Jesus Christ alone. And the other people, the the people who lived long before the coming of Christ, it was a mystery to them. They didn't know it. They didn't understand it. They couldn't get it. They couldn't comprehend it. But now it's been revealed because Jesus has come. This is the mystery. It's Christ in you, in me, which is the hope of glory. That's good news. You guys aren't excited. So you're saying like, Paul, okay, help me here. Okay, so let's let's step back. What does this mean, Christ in you? We're almost finished, the hope of glory. Let's talk about what it's not. It does not say, verse 24, I'm sorry, uh, verse 27, Christ and you, the hope of glory. So here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, Jesus and me are going to go do this thing together and it's going to be awesome. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, Christ and you, that I get up, I do my life, Jesus helps me out, I worship him, we walk in the field together and high five and hug each other and that kind of thing. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying it's Christ and you. You and I bring absolutely nothing to the table. Going back to verse 24, Christ's afflictions, right? He's not saying Christ and you. Here's also what he's not saying. He's not saying Christ inside you, the hope of glory. Now, we know from Scripture that when Jesus dies, we place our faith in him, he rose again, he gives us new life, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That's not what Paul's talking about here, reading through the context of this passage. So he's not saying Christ and you is the hope of glory or Christ inside you is the hope of glory. This is what he's saying. Christ, little in you, is the hope of glory. Paul, I'm not tracking. Okay, I want you to feel the weight of this. 
The mystery is that Christ would come rescue you. The mystery is that Christ would come to rescue me. Why is that a mystery? Because I know my heart. I know what I've done. I know what I've thought. I know what I've looked at. I know what I've wanted other than God. I know the rebel I am. The mystery, it's Christ in you. The gospel has come to you. The gospel has come to the Gentiles who don't deserve it, who are cut off, who are not a part of the family of God. God has now brought the Gentiles into his family. This is the mystery. Christ in you. The hope of glory. When I was in middle school, I played football. My one year of football, okay? My, my career of football summed up in eighth grade. And I uh, played for the Great Eagles. And I always wanted to play football. And I was, I was kind of big, so I thought it would be a good thing. But there's only one problem. I didn't like hitting or being hit by people. And that's a big problem when you play football. And I was a defensive lineman. And so it was the most miserable fall of my life playing football and because I didn't like hitting or being hit I sat at the bench most of the time I would literally come in when we were ahead by 50 points and we were ahead by 50 points a lot because we were good so it was one game it was the highlight of my year um, out there you know playing my position and we were just destroying this team so the quarterback could just dump the ball over the line I saw that so I don't know why but I hit my blocker I stepped back and here it came interception okay my moment of glory I made it two feet got tackled but I had an interception my name comes across uh the the megaphones you know interception number 57 Paul because I can't say Mermillion you know and that's my moment of glory okay I have that I'm pumped I'm psyched have my interception we're already ahead by 60 points doesn't matter but I've got it well fast forward to the end of the season we're playing in the championship game two undefeated teams we go to the fourth quarter double overtime no score we win in double overtime the championship guess how much time i played in that game zero absolutely none guess what i walked away with at the end of the season trophy did i deserve it absolutely not but because i was a part of that team because i was found in that team I received the fullest reward that anyone else did. What does that mean for this passage? Grace. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's saying, we as a people have the most reason to hope as anyone else in this world. Why? Because God has sent his son to rescue you. Why you? I don't know. Why me? I don't know. For some of you here in this room, the news to you is this. God has come to rescue you. You don't deserve it. There's nothing you can do to earn it, but he's come to rescue you through his son. And when we begin to grasp Christ in you, the hope of glory, it changes the way we see Jesus. It changes the way that we serve one another. What does that mean? Think about what Paul's doing. I'm suffering for your sake. I'm making the word of God fully known for your sake. Because I understand this mystery. It changes the way I live. So here's my question to you this morning, church. Have you seen, do you know, have you understood the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory? 
there's a reason why we have hope this morning. And there's a glory that's coming. That's come in Jesus and it's coming again. So what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? Well, a good one is worship. But this is what Paul says. And this is how I just want to close our time. Let's look at the last couple verses that are here. And this is just application. Again, these are in your notes. You don't have to write them down. I just want you to think about it. And even in this moment, just ask the Lord, just make aware to your heart, like, what do I do with this? This is what he says. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. What does that mean? If you understand Christ and you the hope of glory, then you should do everything you can with all your life to put Jesus Christ on display. Through your words, through your testimony, through your life. Share and show the worth of Jesus to a watching world. That's what it means. That we would share and show with all that we are, you declaring Christ and you hope of glory. Let's keep going. Him we proclaim, warning everyone. Now, look back a second. Home, him we proclaim. This is really important. Throughout these verses, Paul begins by saying, me to you, me to you, me to you. But there's a shift here in verse 28. What does he say? Him we proclaim. Who's the we? The church. Teaching, warning everyone. Who's everyone? The church. Well, how do we know it's the church? Keep going. Teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Who are the people who are going to be presented mature in Christ? Believers, right? So this is talking, he's talking to the church on behalf of the church. Him we proclaim, warning everyone. Warning, what would we warn the church of? What are you and I called to warn the church of? Sin. We are called to warn brothers and sisters of soul-killing sin in their lives. And can I be completely honest? In East Tennessee, this is one of the hardest things to do. Because if I get in your business and say, hey, there's something that doesn't line up in your life, that feels offensive and it feels judgmental. But what Paul's saying is this is an act of love to brothers and sisters. You need to have people in your life who can get in your business. You need to be able to be involved in people's lives enough to where you can step in and say, hey, something's not lining up, brother or sister, and I love you so much, I'm going to step in. Please, if you see me walking around and I have a brown recluse on my forehead, please don't let me just keep walking, okay? Step into my life and help me fix it before it kills me. And sin is coming to kill you. May we be the kind of church family that we are willing to fight on behalf of one another, even in the hard things. Warning one another, teaching everyone. What's that? Sharing the word of God. Who's in your life that you're helping understand God's word? Who are you discipling? Who are you leading? Who are you helping learn and grow? That's, that's what he's saying. With all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We've been called to work for the spiritual maturity of others out of love for them, for the glory of God. Verse 29, for this I toil. What does that mean? It's labor. It's hard work. The gospel is hard work. If you're going to be faithful in this world as a Christian, it's hard work. Struggling with all this energy within me. That word struggle, it's the same word that an athlete would use to train and to practice and to fight. Struggle, strive. Hardship, loss. Remember suffering? I fight through the suffering for the glory of God so that others may see Him. Not in your power, but how, look at how it ends. Toil and struggle with all His energy 
that he powerfully works in me. So we stay dependent, fight with all that we are so that others may see the gospel. I invite you to bow your heads and just close your eyes. The band's going to come and lead us in worship. That's a lot of information. There's a lot in that passage to unpack. But here's what I want you to think about as we close. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And for some of us this morning, we just need to be reminded that it is a mystery that Christ would come to rescue you, come to rescue me. And our hope is that he has come to do that. Some of us just need to be reminded of that hope. For some of you, that hope's not a reality. And your response is just to place your faith in Jesus Christ, to see that you're a sinner, you're separated from God, and that He has come to you and you resting in Him, that He is all you have. Christ is all you have. He's all that you need. And I'm resting in Him. I'm surrendering my life to Him. For some, it's to think through, how do I proclaim Christ in my life? How do I be a good steward? Am I stewarding this mystery well? Am I suffering well? Am I walking through hardships in a way that Christ is magnified? Am I loving my brothers and sisters in this room, in Tri-Cities Baptist Church? Am I investing my life into their lives? And so just in the stillness of this moment, I just encourage you, just where you are, even to ask the question, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Where am I falling short? Where am I struggling? Maybe it's a lack of faith, resting in you. Maybe it's I've set my hope of glory on something other than you. Maybe it's responding to faith. Maybe there's a brother or sister that God's put in your life that you've been afraid to get involved in their lives. And it's time for you to invest. It's time for you to open up. It's time for you to let others in. This is your opportunity to respond. I'm going to pray over us. We'll sing. You can sit. You can stand. This is an opportunity for you to respond to what God is telling you to do. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. You are good. We pray that you would Help us to live in light of Christ coming to us that our hope would be set in what you've done for us and what you're doing in us and that you're coming again. Thank you that you came to save me when I was unworthy. It's your name we pray. Amen.